American tradition can be confusing to foreigners, and this can often lead to awkward situations. For example, I know that some countries celebrate Halloween, but many do not. Even though Halloween is portrayed in American TV shows and movies, many exchange students and other foreign visitors are not fully aware of the way the U.S. celebrates this holiday. An American family was hosting a young lady from China. The host family explained to their student the concept of trick-or-treating and told the Chinese girl that she could answer the door and hand out candy to the kids that came to the house. Everyone thought that she understood what to do, but having never heard of Halloween or trick-or-treating, the Chinese girl was still confused on the concept. When the first little boy in costume came to the door, said trick-or-treat, and opened his bag of candy, the Chinese girl reached into his bag, grabbed a piece of candy, and said, thank you. The little boy was so confused, he just left. Trick-or-treating on Halloween is unfortunately a distinct part of the American culture, even the American Christian culture. But does it make it right or wrong? Just what is culture, and how are we to interact with it? Culture can be basically defined as the way of thinking, living, and behaving that define a group of people. If it relates to ethnicity, we say there's an American culture, or a Filipino culture, or a Chinese culture. It can also relate to people in various social economic levels, in that we'd refer to the culture of the elite, or the culture of the poor, or the middle class culture. Culture can also be generational. We have the Gen Z culture, or the millennial culture, or the boomer culture. But as followers of Jesus Christ, there's only one culture that should define all of us, regardless of our ethnicity, age, or wealth, and that is our Christian culture. And how our Christ-centered culture is different, and how we relate and interact with the worldly culture in which we live is important for us to understand. Unfortunately, we don't intentionally think about the culture in which we live. We just simply accept what everyone else is doing. For example, why don't we segregate by men and women when we attend church? Why don't we all wear hats at church? Why do we visit the cemeteries on November 1? Why do we wear something red or colorful during someone's birthday? Why do many of us pray with our eyes closed and our hands folded? Why do we drive on the right side of the road instead of the left side, as in many parts of the world? Why do we shake hands with our right hand? Why must there be rice with chicken adobo? You see, culture, and even the Christian culture, is something that everyone around us is doing, and so it naturally becomes a part of us as we simply follow what everyone else is doing and are assimilated into it, especially when we don't intentionally or consciously think about it. As someone said, it is asking a fish what it thinks about water or a bird about the atmosphere. Culture is the atmosphere in which we live without consciously thinking about it. And that is our problem. Since we don't think a great deal about the culture in which we live, which subtly affects us, then we allow our environment to define our set of beliefs or our normative actions, or what we call our worldview. It is only when we are called to attention that there is an opposing cultural practice or different ways of doing things that we are awakened and made aware. For example, when Cindy gave birth to our eldest, Andrew, she went through a one-month postnatal confinement called Get Lie, 
which is apparently normal in the Asian cultures. One month of eating special, unique, nutritional foods. But what was so foreign to me was the part of this postnatal confinement practice of not showering for a month. I remember back then when people called to ask to visit us, I would politely decline and refuse and tell them, perhaps you can visit after we've gotten things settled down in a month's time. But in reality, I wanted to say, you can't visit our house because my wife hasn't showered in a month and she smells. In fact, I was ready to show my firstborn to the world, but I was told I could not bring the baby out of the house for the first month until the period known as Mwage was over. I know that there are supposed health reasons for these practices, but it was so foreign to me growing up in the U.S. It was then that I realized that showering right after you give birth and taking your baby out to see the world after they are born is not the norm in Asia as it is in the Western world. It is often only when introduced to a differing cultural practice that our eyes are opened to the culture of which we are a part and surrounds us. Therefore, my friends, it is important that we take our cultural beliefs and practices, which we may just do without really thinking about it because everyone is doing it, and filter them through a biblical framework to see if it is in alignment with the standards God has set in the Bible. Let's see how we as Christians are to engage the worldly culture that we live in, and in particular, how do we share the truth of God's Word in our ungodly surroundings? If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 17 as we take a look at verses 16 to 34. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34, as we continue our series Voyager, where we've been studying the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. From this passage, we want to see how Paul's encounter with the Athenian culture is a great guide for the manner in which we can dialogue with contemporary culture. I read now verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. If you remember, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were in Berea having a great ministry when troublemakers from Thessalonica came and stirred up the crowds against Paul and his team. For his safety, Paul traveled ahead to Athens about 195 miles south-southwest of Berea, with Silas and Timothy soon to follow to meet Paul in Athens. While Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas to come from Berea, he decided to explore this beautiful ancient city with all of his temples and gods. He would have certainly seen the striking Acropolis of Athens with its prominent Parthenon dedicated to the goddess Athena, which dominates the city's skyline even today. Today, hordes of tourists go to Athens and are still awed by its impressive architectural structures, most all of which were dedicated to their gods. Imagine, during the time of Paul, how much more impressive Athens must have been as it would have been thriving in its many ancient buildings not destroyed and in ruins as it is today. But instead of being in wonderment, look at Paul's reaction. The Bible tells us he was disturbed. Why? Because of the idols that were all around the city. 
There were so many temples and shrines dedicated to the many Greek and Roman gods that it disturbed the Apostle Paul. The idolatrous culture of Athens didn't align or match up with Paul's belief in the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he was provoked, meaning irritated. It bothered him because there were too many idols in the city. As a follower of Christ, like the Apostle Paul, would this also be your reaction? If, for example, you were to go to Thailand, Cambodia, India, Taiwan, Bali, or even Japan, what would be your reaction when you see all of those Buddhist temples, Hindu shrines, or Shinto shrines? Does it bother you? Does it provoke you or disturb you? Or are you not affected? Are you not affected that so many people live in spiritual darkness and are eternally lost? And therein lies our first biblical principle for engaging the culture. Number one, our response to ungodly culture is to be disturbed. Our response to ungodly culture, be disturbed. We should be irritated and disturbed by the sins of the world. Some of the idols of this culture are individualism, promiscuity, infidelity, narcissism, humanism, pride, and any lifestyle that contradicts what is taught in the Bible. All of these and much more should bother us if it does not align with the Bible. We should not accept or normalize sin. We should be disturbed by it. Any idolatrous practice should bother us. You know, sometimes when I scroll through social media, especially reels on FB or IG, or shorts on YouTube, even as a late Gen Xer, I'm often still shocked by what I see as content that is now considered appropriate for the general public and even for minors. I'm not a prude, but I find what I see lewd and inappropriate for the Christian mind to see and absorb, and I am disturbed by it. The issue is not that we are exposed to it because we are in a media-saturated world. But the bigger problem is that we are desensitized to it by being so exposed that sin and sinful things no longer affect us or bother us. We laugh and make light of people who are living out a lifestyle inconsistent with the Bible as a comedy act, for example. We shrug off as normal when someone is a mistress or is in an adulterous relationship. Sadly, sin and sinful living no longer disturb us, and it should. Our response to an ungodly culture is to be disturbed, irritated, and annoyed by it to the point that it provokes us to action, just like what the Apostle Paul will do. Let's take a look at verses 17 and 18 to see what he did. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. To address the fact that he was disturbed, the Bible tells us Paul talked to several groups of people in the city, from the Jews to the God-fearing Gentiles, to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and as well as those in the general public, to those who happen to be there, as the Bible notes. 
it is very evident that Paul engaged the community. He did not back away from interacting with the culture. Now, you may be thinking that Paul was unique because he had the skill set and the ability to communicate with many different types of people. But more than his ability to initiate and carry on a conversation, Paul was willing to talk to them and engage them. From places of worship to the marketplaces, Paul was going to engage the culture for Christ's sake by starting a conversation. My friends, are you willing to even start a conversation about spiritual things? Or are you too afraid to do so? Because you know deep down that Christian culture will differ from the world's culture, and you don't want to let it be known that you are different. Are you engaging the culture of which you and I are a part? My friends, you know we have just as much right to talk about and even define the culture of which we are a part. For example, if you are a Christian who happens to be ethnically Chinese, you have every right to help define the Chinese culture because you're Chinese. When I first came here, I was told that no weddings or auspicious occasions, such as the opening of business, was supposed to happen on the so-called ghost month and that this is because of Chinese tradition. But upon further investigation, I realized it was based on pagan belief and had nothing to do with the Chinese culture. So to help define and counter this belief, our Chinese church offered free weddings to those church members who were willing to get married during the so-called ghost month. This is how we engage our culture in order to transform it. My friends, in a wider perspective, you and I can talk about the culture of this country it even helped define the culture of this world because we are citizens of this country and this world. What I'm saying is, don't think you don't have the right to engage the culture just because it's worldly and you are a Christian. As a Christ follower, you and I have a responsibility to engage the culture. If you're with your friends and they say this is the right way, even if you know it's wrong, you have just as much right to engage them and correct them and say, no, this is the right way, and I believe it to be so according to the Bible. And you have that right because you are a part of that group of friends. Remember, culture is a way of thinking, living, and behaving that defines a group of people. And if all Christians can help define what is right and wrong in the prevalent culture, then it will make an impact. But we have to first be willing to engage the culture in order to transform it. And this is our second biblical principle. Our responsibility to culture is to engage to transform. Our responsibility to culture, engage to transform. My friends, we have a responsibility to engage the culture with the aim of transforming it for Jesus Christ, even if the culture does not agree with you. I am fully aware that culture is hard to change. Having experience in the business world, I understand that organizational change is one of the hardest things to achieve. In the business world, there's a saying, culture always eats strategy for breakfast. That means you can have the greatest program, the best laid out plans, the most transformative, innovative, strategic initiative to get something done. 
But unless the corporate or organizational culture changes, then nothing moves. Culture always trumps strategy. While culture change is difficult, with the help of the Holy Spirit, it can happen. And it begins when Christians understand that it is our responsibility to engage culture so that we can transform it according to God's Word. For example, we know that the running joke in our country is that stoplights are just suggestions and that four cars, green means go, yellow means go faster, and red means slow down, but if there's no one crossing, you can go. But I've seen this practice change through the years I've been here. Perhaps it's because of more cameras, but more and more drivers now stop when the light is red, even in the middle of the night, and there are no cars crossing. In fact, through the years, I found less and less drivers blowing their car horns as a matter of practice, and the cultural use of car horns has changed. You see, when people actively engage to transform culture, there can be positive things that can happen, even something as hard as perhaps our culture of corruption. Now, if only all Christ followers take on the responsibility to engage to transform, think of what can be done, starting with our church community. Look again at verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. In verse 18, some of the Greek philosophers called Paul an idle babbler, literally, one who makes his living by picking up scraps. They were looking down on him and basically called him uneducated. Now, I point this out because I want you to understand something. If you're going to engage the culture in order to transform it for Jesus Christ, not everyone is going to like you. Just expect to be rejected. And this is our third biblical principle. Number three, our expectation when engaging culture, rejection. Our expectation when engaging culture, rejection. My friends, are you okay with rejection? Because if you're not okay with rejection, then you will find it very difficult to stand up to the sinful lifestyle that is so prevalent in our culture. Do you dare walk out of a movie, play, concert, or show that you're watching when you realize that there is something inappropriate in the show, especially if you're with friends? Do you have the boldness to graciously tell your family or friends that you won't be joining them on a trip or in an activity that you know displeases the Lord or is against your biblical conviction? Even if they call you names or talk behind your back, or even if they begin not to invite you to certain things, will you take a stand? How willing are you to take rejection? The great preacher J. Campbell Morgan was one of 150 young men who sought entrance to the Wesleyan ministry in 1888. Two weeks later, Morgan's name appeared among the 105 rejected for the ministry that year. Jill Morgan, his daughter-in-law, wrote in her book, A Man of the Word. He wired to his father the one word, rejected, and sat down to write in his diary. Very dark, everything seems. Still, he knoweth best. Quickly came the reply, 
rejected on earth, accepted in heaven, Dad. You know, my friends, rejection is rarely permanent, as Morgan's very spiritually successful ministry went on to prove. You see, ultimately, there is no rejection of those accepted by Christ. Rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. My friends, are you okay with that? I read now verses 19 to 21. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. The Bible tells us that the Greeks brought Paul to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, or Eris' rock, was a supposed place in Greek mythology where the god Eris, son of Zeus and Hera, was tried and acquitted for the revenge murder of Poseidon's son. The Romanized name was Mars Hill, a place of trial. This was the place where the Athenians discussed new thoughts and philosophies. Paul engaged them so well without being judgmental and with understanding of their culture, he spoke to them in such a way that he was able to elicit from them a greater desire to know more about Christianity. Paul was not obnoxious in his cultural engagements. He didn't tell them up front that they would all go to hell if they didn't believe. He wisely engaged them in spiritual conversation that would get them to ask more questions about Jesus without ever manipulating the truth. This is a wonderful reminder to us about engaging our culture with sincerity, love, and grace in the gentleness of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22 to 23, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Paul's speech showed that he took the time to understand Athenian culture. He understood it so well, not only with a peripheral, superficial understanding, but had a great desire to know it well. He told them, you have so many idols, Paul knew their gods, and even have an altar for an unknown god. For the Athenians, it was an altar just in case they missed the god. But Paul so understood the culture that he told them, I know the name of that unknown God as a segue to get their attention and whet their interest. In verses 24 to 31, he will now use a beautiful argument to convince them of this one true God. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, 
for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. I wish we had time to study these verses in detail, but basically Paul was able to differentiate the one true God from the false gods of the Greeks. His speech showed he knew the culture well. This was a culture that wanted nothing more than to please their gods in ways that defied logic just to curry their favor. This was a culture that believed their gods were indifferent to the plight of mankind. This was a culture where life was short and hopeless. That's why the Epicurean mantra was, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Paul was able to speak of a God who loves and cares for His people who does not live in temples or buildings, but is accessible to all people. In fact, this God doesn't need anything from us like offerings, since He is the one that supplies us with all good things. And He desires His children to live holy lives with the promise of resurrection life. Paul presented a message of hope and purpose, a message of salvation for the people a message that the culture needed to hear that was so different from the hopelessness of their current beliefs. And from this, we draw our fourth biblical principle. Number four, our preparation when engaging culture. Understand the culture. Our preparation when engaging culture. Understand the culture. My friends, it is important that we understand the culture. I remember the story my father told our family of the first time he went to the U.S. for studies in the 1960s. On the first night of his arrival in the U.S., he was hungry and looking forward to dinner. His American host family asked him if he was hungry and wanted dinner. In Asian deference, he said no, expecting the American family to ask again, which you do in Asia, with questions like, are you sure? And then there's a back and forth. So hearing the answer of my father, to his shock and horror, they didn't ask again and put the food back in the refrigerator. My father went to bed very hungry that night, but learned a very important lesson. While in Asia, you must ask three times and refuse two times. In America, you only get asked once and that's it. Actually, the American way is more biblical. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Matthew 5, 37. Again, we have to understand the culture before we engage it. But a word of caution. In our preparation to understand culture, make sure we don't do anything that causes us to sin ourselves. Also, in understanding our culture, we have to understand how the culture thinks about Christ's followers. Stuart Strachan shares about this. Why is it so intimidating to talk about Jesus in contemporary Western culture? One obvious reason might lie in the ubiquitous negative portrayals of Christians in mainstream media. It's not hard to see that Christians don't have a great reputation, especially for some reason, in media portrayals. Most of us would probably argue these are one-dimensional stereotypes, ironically, when you think of Hollywood's desire to be non-judgmental. 
but it does affect how others perceive us, however wrong. We have to understand how the culture portrays Christians to properly engage it for the Lord, addressing misconceptions and clearly presenting what great alternatives Christ offers to the world. But it begins when we understand the culture. From these eight verses, in verses 24 to 31, we can see that Paul knew well the Scriptures. He understood biblical theology. He knew the points to make and the points of disagreement between the Christian culture and the Athenian culture. And he spoke his arguments clearly and with passion and conviction. And this is our fifth principle for engaging culture. Number five, a second aspect of preparation when engaging culture is to know the Bible. Our preparation when engaging culture, know the Bible. My friends, at the end of the day, you and I need to know what the Bible says to engage the culture so that you can know what parts of our culture are consistent with the Bible and what aspects of our culture disagrees with biblical truths. You need to know what you believe. You also need to know why you believe what you believe. The world has a lot of reasons for why they do what they do and what they believe, to the point where they can argue well for their position. But can we do the same for our foundational Christian beliefs? You know, I really don't fully understand the millennial and Gen Z cultures. I don't get why they have to abbreviate everything, BRB, TTLY, G2G, IKR, TNTL, TBH, YOLO, SUS, FOMO, SHUK, etc., I don't understand their fascination with the supernatural, the mythical, and the occult. It boggled my mind a few years ago why young people would be so fascinated with a fictional girl choosing love between a werewolf or a vampire. I don't understand many things about the culture today, but I do try to understand. However, I always take time to filter the cultural practices, trends, and interests through a biblical framework so that I can know what to accept and what to avoid, what to speak out against and what to support. My friends, God does not change, and what He's written in the Bible does not change. The very character of God does not change. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself, does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, as Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 so clearly tells us. So without being grounded in the Word of God, then instead of changing the world's culture, the culture will instead influence and change us. We must be able to defend our Christian faith in this culture, and it begins with knowing the Bible. There's a street in Hong Kong named Renaxella Terrace on Hong Kong Island near Central. You can Google map where it is. It's famous for a few reasons, but one of them is because it was the street where Philippine revolutionary hero Jose Rizal lived with his family while working as an eye clinician in Hong Kong. The other reason is because the road was part of the property owned by a certain Mr. Alexander. As many of you know, Western languages are written and read from left to right, while the Chinese language is written and read from right to left. Most likely, a city clerk that didn't know English accidentally transcribed the name as Renexella rather than the correct Alexander Terrace. Renexella is backwards, you see, for the writing of Alexander. 
And yet this mistake lives on and continues to be accepted as the real name of the road. This is the reason we need to know the Bible before we engage the culture. We need to be grounded in the truth so that we will not be swayed even if the majority culture is doing it. What is wrong is wrong, and what is right is right, regardless of the culture. Now look with me at verses 32 to 34. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The Bible tells us Paul experienced three reactions in Athens. First, in verse 32, the Bible tells us some began to mock, to sneer. They expressed contempt. We should not be surprised when God's message is rejected. Remember, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting God and His Word. Second, the Bible tells us some said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Know that some will still want to hear more and dig deeper in the study of God's Word. My friends, when you engage the culture for Christ, be ready to walk with people on the journey of discovery to explain your Christian faith. Third, the Bible tells us some men and women joined Him and believed. And the wonderful thing is that when we engage the culture, many times the gospel message falls on prepared hearts and is received. It results in people placing their trust in Jesus Christ and results in a changed life. And this is why we engage culture, not so we can fight and create a scene. We do not engage the culture to show how smart we are and to embarrass people. We do not engage the culture to condemn them or to judge them. We do so because through the work of the Holy Spirit, it is our prayer that people will find Jesus. And this is our sixth principle. Number six, our prayer when engaging culture is that people will know Jesus. Our prayer when engaging culture, people will know Jesus. This was why the Apostle Paul desired to engage the Athenians so that they would come to know Jesus. And that should be our motivation as well, to engage culture to show the world that there's a different, more hopeful way to live, which is possible when they find Jesus. A blogger shared, I was in Chiang Mai, Thailand, late at night, and at one of those little restaurants that opens under an overpass. I ordered a pad capro, which is stir-fried pork with basil and rice, from an elderly lady who runs the store, and I ate it in silence. When it came time to pay, I didn't have any money in my pockets. Luckily, I'd hidden some money in my shoe as a safety measure. So when the lady asked for my money and I took it out of my shoe, she absolutely flipped out at me, screaming. I couldn't understand the problem until she grabbed the bill from me and pointed to the picture of the Thai king on it and then pointed at my shoes. It was only then I understood that since the feet are considered filthy in Thai culture, I'd committed a terrible faux pas by putting an image of the sacred Thai king under my feet. I tried to explain there was American money in there too, so I had insulted the American presidents as well, but she wasn't having any of it and continued to berate me. My friends, the world's culture literally steps on, disregards, and disrespects the one true king and his word. 
as Christians who live in this culture, we have to act. Our response to ungodly culture is to be disturbed. Our responsibility to culture is to engage to transform. Our expectation when engaging culture is to be rejected. Our preparation when engaging culture is to understand the culture and to know the Bible. Our prayer when engaging culture is so that people will know Jesus. My friends, as we engage the culture, may our words and actions encourage men and women to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and submit to His Lordship in their lives. May God give us the wisdom and discernment in how to engage the culture in order to transform it for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the example You give us in the Bible of how Paul interacted with the Athenian culture. We need to engage our culture in such a way that we do so with love and grace to speak forth spiritual conversations from the Word of God that will encourage and elicit men and women to want to have a conversation with us to know more about Jesus Christ. Help us to live our lives in such a way that we are different from the world, that we will know that through our difference, people want to know Jesus. Father, I pray that you would allow us to be okay with rejection, but just to boldly engage the culture, and through prayer and through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, many will come to know Christ. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment to know how to understand these times, to understand the culture, and how for us as Christians to live in the culture, but also be distinct from it. Father, we love you, and we need your help in this matter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.